0: Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about, in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans, like for a car or home. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at chime.com build. That's chime.com slash build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com slash premium. It only costs $5 a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by ExpressVTN. Let's stop allowing big tech to revoke our rights to freedom of speech. Why not revoke their rights to our data instead? So go to expressvpn.com slash gold, espressvp slash gold, and you'll get an extra three months free on a one-year package. As I predicted on my last podcast, the U.S. stock market continued to sell off in the aftermath of the Fed's decision to not only raise interest rates by 75 basis points, but Powell's continued tough talk on the Fed's commitment to bringing the inflation rate back down to 2%, no matter what. Even if doing so causes pain, even if it causes recession, even if it results in a correction in the housing market, nothing is going to distract the Fed from successfully completing its mission of ridding the country of the scourge of high inflation. Of course, Powell never accepted any responsibility for the Fed having let loose the scourge of inflation in the first place. But regardless, of where the inflation problem came from, the Fed is committed to solving it. And as I said, any commitment to solving the inflation problem is also a commitment to not only destroy the stock market, the real estate market, the bond market, but the entire U.S. economy that has been propped up on the foundation of inflation. It's been quantitative easing, it's been 0% interest rates. This economy was built with that foundation. You can't destroy the foundation and expect the house of cards that was erected on top of it to levitate in midair. So everything is going to come crashing down. In fact, the Dow Jones average closed Friday down 486 points, though that was well off the low. At one point, the Dow was down better than 800 points, but it closed at 29,590. That is a new low for this bear market. In fact, the Dow is now officially in bear market territory down a full 20%. So far, the Dow Jones is the first and only major stock market index to take out its June low, but it won't be the last. Not only did the Dow Jones take out its June low, it actually closed below that June low. That is a very bearish technical pattern that does not bode well for Monday. So once again, the prospect of a Black Monday looms large. Now, we haven't had a big crash yet, But we've had a slow motion crash. The question is, is the speed of this crash going to accelerate? And at what point will this cause Powell to pivot? Because at some point, the stock market will drop low enough that it will be a big enough problem for the Fed. Right now, the Fed thinks, okay, we're still not that far off the highs. But more importantly than just the stock market going down, it's why it's going down. Because we are one day away from a major blow-up somewhere in the U.S. economy. Some company is going to go bankrupt with rising interest rates, and the systemic risk is going to rear its ugly head again just the way it did in 2008. So at some point, Powell is going to cry uncle. The question is, how much pain is the Fed willing to endure? Powell claims it's willing to allow the economy to endure some pain, Well, I wonder how much pain they're willing to endure themselves when they get inundated with political pressure. You can already hear the cries from the Elizabeth Warrens of the world blaming the Fed for this collapse. In fact, the Fed is actually being set up as the fall guy to take the heat and to take the pressure off the Biden administration so that all the problems could be laid directly at the feet of the Federal Reserve. While everybody will be blaming the Federal Reserve For causing the collapse by raising rates too much, the real mistake that the Fed made was lowering them too much and leaving them too low for too long. Professor Jeremy Siegel was on CNBC for a long time on Friday being highly critical of the Fed, and he was correctly criticizing the Fed for being too loose in the face of too much inflation in 2021. But he wasn't being nearly critical enough when it comes to the Fed's inflationary monetary policies, which really date all the way back to 1998 and the long-term capital management bailout. That's when the Fed really started printing money, and then it printed even more money in advance of Y2K, and then even more money after the Nasdaq bubble popped in 2000, and even more money after the real estate bubble popped in 2008. So, it's not just one year of excess money printing. The Fed has been too loose for almost 25 years, flooding the economy with cheap money. According to Professor Siegel, if the Fed had simply started hiking interest rates sooner rather than claiming inflation was transitory or ended quantitative easing sooner rather than later, then we wouldn't be having these problems. The fact of the matter is the reason that Powell didn't act sooner is because he didn't want to create a problem by fighting inflation, because at that time, inflation wasn't a problem. Well, now that inflation is a problem, well, there's no reason for the Fed not to fight it. They didn't want to fight it in 2021 because it would have created a problem for the economy, because now the inflation that they didn't want to fight, because doing so would have created a problem, has itself become the problem. And so they got a problem either way. They're damned if they do, and they're damned if they don't. So that's why they're fighting inflation now. But even if they had chosen to fight it earlier, before it got this out of hand, they still would have created a crisis, because it's not just being too loose for a year. Again, it's 25 years of reckless money printing, of malinvestments and misallocations of resources. This is a gigantic credit bubble. We just added even more fuel to that bubble. In the last year. So we just ended the mania with a more spectacular blow off top. But there was no way around this. There was no correct decision that the Fed could have made in 2021. So all they did is make the only decision that would allow them to postpone the pain for a little longer. They had no idea how much time they were buying by being that reckless, but they didn't care. Because again, the name of the game for the Fed is always. Don't create a problem, even if it solves a bigger problem. Wait for that bigger problem to become a crisis. That's why I wrote the book, The Real Crash, America's Coming Bankruptcy, How to Save Yourself and Your Country, because I knew that the 2008 crash that I predicted in my original book that came out in 2007, Crash Proof, had a profit from the coming economic collapse. I knew the real crash hadn't happened because it was postponed by the reckless monetary policy pursued by the Federal Reserve in the aftermath of that 2008 financial crisis. Well, the real crash is the one we're headed for right now. And we were going to have that crash regardless of the mistakes the Fed made in 2021. We were going to have it for all the mistakes it made, not just going back to 2008, but going all the way back to 1998. Getting back to the actual damage on the week, to the stock market, the Dow Jones dropped 4% and again is now down 20% from its record high back in official bear market territory. The S&P 500 on the week dropped 4.6%. It is now down 23.4% and again, it's back in bear market territory. I predicted on my last podcast that the S&P would probably fall into bear market territory again by the end of the week. And that is exactly what has happened. Russell 2000 had an even worse week, down 6.6%. It's now down 32% from its record high. The Nasdaq beaten up even worse than the Russell 2000, dropping 7.7% on the week. It's off 33% from its record high. The ARK Innovation ETF having an even rougher week. These are the even more speculative type of stocks that would be contained in the Nasdaq. That ETF down 15% on the week. It's now down 76% from its record high, and it still has a long way to fall. By the way, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust that I always try to talk about when I talk about ARK Innovation because of their very high correlation to one another held up actually better than I would have thought this week. It was only down 11%. It still made a new 52-week low, and that trust is now off 81% from its record high. So if you bought the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust at its record high, thinking that it was some kind of store of value or safe haven, 81% of what you tried to keep safe has already been lost. And by the way, if you remember, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is the company that launched the Drop Gold campaign. That was in May of 2021. And I was very critical of that campaign in fact it was running non-stop on cnbc i think the grayscale bitcoin trust is probably cnbc's biggest advertiser so they were really encouraging their viewers to the extent that any of them had gold to go sell their gold and to buy the grayscale bitcoin trust not bitcoin itself but this grayscale bitcoin trust which of course was trading at a premium and now it trades at a big discount but if you go back to the beginning of that campaign which was launched in May, that campaign was so widespread, it was such a big pump that it pushed the price of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust up to $17.40 the following month in June. Now, it didn't close the month that high, but it spiked up there based on all the buying that was generated from this ad campaign and all the free publicity they got from networks like CNBC, who used this Marketing campaign as a financial news story, and then gave Grayscale free press, more press than they paid for. And so a lot of people that watch CNBC probably bought the Grayscale Trust, whether they dumped their gold or not remains to be seen. But since that $17.40 high over three years ago, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is down 36%. In contrast, during the exact same period of time, the price of gold is up by 23%. Despite its recent losses, it's still up 23% from June of 2021. And so that means if you actually followed the advice of that commercial and you dropped your gold and took the money and bought the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, you're down by 59%. So a very bad swap, and it's going to get even worse as I expect the price in gold to eventually go way up and the price of Bitcoin to keep falling, dragging down the price of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. But getting back to the stock markets, there are some very obvious reasons that stock prices are going down. And fundamentally, they still have a long way to fall. And it's amazing that so many so-called experts don't recognize the extent to which equity prices are at risk and how much lower they actually have to fall to the extent that the Fed actually follows through with what it is claiming it's going to do with interest rates and this inflation fight. Because higher interest rates directly destroy stock market valuations. And there's four principal reasons for that. So let me go over those reasons so it's perfectly clear why what is happening right now with interest rates is very bearish for US stocks. Even though they've already gone down quite a bit and are in bear market territory, they still have a long way to fall. Because remember, stock prices were propped way up as a result of inflation and artificially low interest rates. So when you try to remove that inflation by raising interest rates, then prices are going to have to come crashing down to a level consistent with this new environment that companies are operating. But One of the reasons that high interest rates hurt stocks is because a lot of stocks have debt. And if you are a company and you have debt on your balance sheet, which of course, corporations have record amounts of debt on their balance sheets, thanks to the Fed keeping interest rates so low for so long, lots of companies took advantage of cheap money by going into debt. And then what do they do with the money? They use it to buy back stock, but they bought back stock at inflated prices. In fact, as the stock market collapses, and a lot of this debt comes due, a lot of these companies are going to be sitting on unrealized losses. They would have paid higher prices for the stock they bought, but now the money they borrowed to buy it is going to cost a lot more to service. And so as corporations that have debt have to pay bondholders more money to service that debt, that directly reduces corporate earnings. And the only way corporations may be able to deal with that debt is by repaying it. Well, how are they going to repay debt? Well, they have to unwind those stock buys. They have to take the stock they bought and sell it into the market to get the money to pay off their debt. But of course, when companies go from share buybacks to share sellouts, the share prices are gonna collapse. And in fact, companies will probably have to sell more shares than they bought because the price is down. And so this weighs not only on their stock price, but on all stock prices. Now you have all this selling. A big driver of the bull market has been buybacks. Well, a big driver of the bear market is going to be sellouts as all the stock that was bought back gets dumped back on the market. There's another way that higher interest rates also affect corporate earnings, and that's because corporations have customers that also have a lot of debt. And so as their customers have to pay more money to service their debt, they have less money available to purchase The goods and services that a corporation may be selling. So not only are its earnings under pressure from its own increase in interest rates, but its earnings are under pressure because of its customers' increase in their interest rates. So earnings are collapsing as interest rates are rising. And stock prices, of course, are a function of future earnings. You have to discount future earnings into the present. So if those future earnings are going down, the present value is going down. But also, and this is another big reason that high interest rates hurt stock prices, is when you compute the present value of a future earnings stream, you have to discount it by an interest rate. Now, the lower the interest rate, the higher the present value of those future earnings. Now, as the Fed is raising interest rates, now you are diminishing the value of those future earnings. So not only are corporate earnings collapsing but the present value of those diminished earnings is also collapsing. So rising interest rates actually deliver a double whammy to stock prices. Another way interest rates are gonna hurt the stock market is by pushing the economy into a recession. And when we're in recession, there's also gonna be huge job losses. And so all those job losses are gonna mean that a lot of customers are gonna have a lot less income to spend buying the goods and services that companies have for sale. So earnings are just going to implode for all sorts of reasons. Debt service costs are going to explode. This is a disaster for the stock market.
1: (sighs) Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about. In your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. Feels like progress. The Chime credit bill visa credit card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members of out-of-network ATM withdrawal, and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable.
0: With professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And of course, as interest rates rise, a lot of companies aren't just going to have trouble paying their debt. They're not going to be able to pay their debt, they're going to go bankrupt. And so a lot of these bankrupt companies are no longer going to be buying any goods and services from businesses that they used to patronize. And, of course, the systemic risk is going to be there because when a company goes bankrupt and it can't pay its bills, now the company it owed money to isn't going to get paid. And so now maybe that company can't pay its bills either, and so on and so on. That is the type of systemic risk that caused the Federal Reserve to do quantitative easing in the first place. That's why we had all the bailouts in 2008, because we had all these banks that were too big to fail. Why were they too big to fail? Because if they failed, it was going to send shockwaves throughout the economy because of how interconnected everything was. and Because of all the systemic risk, you let one big bank fail, it's just one domino, and now all the rest are going to go. Well, is the Fed going to do the right thing in 2022 or 2023 when it didn't do the right thing in 2008? What is the only reason that the Fed did the wrong thing? The wrong thing was slashing rates to zero and doing quantitative easing. why did the Fed do that? Because if it didn't do it, it was gonna allow a lot of short-term pain. By doing it, it traded long-term pain for some short-term gain. In fact, the Fed made the same bad trade-off in 2020 at the onset of the COVID crisis. Instead of allowing the economy to endure the pain of dealing with the crisis, it slashed interest rates back down to zero, launched a massive quantitative easing program to postpone that pain. So again, it was short-term gain, but only at the expense of long-term pain. Well, the long-term pain is the pain that we're about to endure now, but the Fed had no stomach for pain in 2008 or in 2020. So they just postponed it to some future date, by creating inflation. Well, now they're going to be in the same predicament that they were 12 years ago and two years ago, only now they're staring at a much greater crisis with even more pain. Why would they do the right thing now when they weren't willing to do the right thing back then? Why wouldn't they once again trade long-term pain for some short-term gain? That is exactly what I think they're going to do. I think the Fed is basically going to say, you know what, inflation is bad, but it's not as bad as depression. It's not as bad as a financial crisis. And so even though inflation is not down to 2%, because we now have a much bigger problem than inflation, we're going to solve this problem the same way we solved the problem in 2008. We're going to slash interest rates. We're going to do quantitative easing, which will send the dollar through the floor and inflation through the roof. We're not going to have another 12 years of phony borrowed prosperity. Yes, the Fed will be able to buy itself some time, but it may only be months, not years. Don't let government or political correctness pressure big tech into making you surrender your rights to freedom of speech. What's playing out right now with big tech and our social media sites is setting a dangerous precedent. Look, it doesn't matter what your politics are or who you voted for. Everyone should have the right to express themselves freely. Sadly, big tech monopolies have instead opted for silencing tactics and censorship. One way to fight back against big tech is to use ExpressVPN. Have you ever wondered how free-to-access tech giants make all their money? Well, they do it by tracking your searches, video history, and everything you click on. They build a profile on you, and then they sell that sensitive data. But when you use ExpressVPN on your computer or cell phone, you anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your IP address. That makes your activity more difficult to trace and to sell to advertisers. What's more, ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your network data to protect you from eavesdroppers and cyber criminals. But what I like most is how easy it is to use. It just takes one click to protect all your devices. That's why ExpressVPN is ranked number one by Business Insider. But one of the other benefits that I really enjoy about ExpressVPN is that it lets me gain access to content that would otherwise be restricted to me based on my location. In fact, just yesterday, I wanted to watch a video on an Australian website, but the only way I can get access to it was by changing my ExpressVPN location to Sydney. But for my ExpressVPN subscription, I would not have been able to access that video. So let's stop allowing big tech to revoke our rights to free speech. Why not revoke their rights to our data instead? Secure your internet with the VPN I trust for online protection. Visit expressvpn.com slash That's expressvpn, E-S-P-R-E-S-S, slash to get three extra months free with my exclusive link. Go to expressvpn.com slash right now to learn more. Bank of America finally threw in the towel and decided to officially forecast a U.S. recession beginning in the first half of 2023. And they expect the unemployment rate to rise to 5.6% by the end of 2023. Of course, what Bank of America is completely overlooking is the fact that the U.S. economy is already in recession. The recession is not going to begin in January of 2023. It already began in January of this year. It's not a new recession that we're going to have next year. It's going to be a continuation of the existing recession that started at the beginning of this year. Does it make any sense if you're gonna acknowledge that we're in a recession in the first half of next year to still try to claim that the negative GDP from the first two quarters, which will probably end up being the out quarters of negative GDP growth for 2022, we can have an entire year where the economy contracts for four quarters. Is there any reason to still pretend that that's not a recession just because we don't get the big spike in unemployment until 2023. It makes a lot more sense to admit that that recession actually began quarters before the recession ultimately caused a big rise in unemployment. But just because it took unemployment a while to rise doesn't mean the economy wasn't in recession before it rose. In fact, it was the recession potentially that is the reason that unemployment rose. And what are the reasons that it didn't rise sooner was because a lot of people were taking second and third jobs to try to make ends meet because the economy was so weak as a result of higher prices. The only way people could afford to pay higher prices was to work longer hours. And in many cases, that necessitated taking second or third jobs. Getting back to the stock markets, we continue to see weakness in the mining stocks. And on my last podcast, I was commenting on a divergence that was potentially developing because the gold stocks were holding up kind of well in the face of gold itself making new 52-week lows. We weren't seeing that in the miners and silver was actually rising even as gold was falling. And so I thought that potentially could be signaling a bottom. Well, I got that wrong because both the GDX and the GDXJ it knew 52-week lows on the week. The GDX was down 5.7% on the week. Now, not as big a drop as the NASDAQ composite, not even as big a drop as the Russell 2000, but nonetheless, it was still a drop. That index is off 41.6% from its 52-week high. The GDXJ had a much worse week. It was down 8%, so that exceeded The 7.7% loss in the NASDAQ. That index is now down 48% from its 52 week high. But if you want to contrast it to its record high, because when I talked about the Dow's 20% drop or the NASDAQ's 33% drop, that's from the record high that we hit this year. When you want to look at the GDXJ, the record high was in 2010. That's 12 years ago. And the GDXJ is 85% lower than it was 12 years ago. That is what a bear market looks like. And that is what the bear market could look like in the Dow and the S&P if the Fed actually fights inflation and successfully brings it back down to 2%. Now, when you have a 12-year bear market where you're down 85%, that generally presents a great buying opportunity. The gold stocks, in my opinion, are nearing the end of a major bear market, and represent an incredible long-term buying opportunity. In contrast, the Dow, S&P, NASDAQ, these indexes are just completing a massive bull market and have just begun what is going to be a massive bear market. So while you should be selling into the decline in U.S. stocks, you should be buying into the weakness in gold stocks because I expect the weakness in U.S. stocks to continue but I don't expect the weakness in gold stocks to continue. Does that mean they're at an absolute bottom right now? No, it does not. But it means that they're a great investment value. I purchased more mining stocks in my personal account on Friday. I hadn't pulled the trigger in the last couple of weeks. I already have a lot of money in gold mining stocks, but I just couldn't resist the prices on Friday. So I bought more and I am willing to buy more next week If the market continues to give away these stocks, and it is my recommendation for anybody who is listening to this podcast, if you are somebody that can tolerate risk, this is not for people who don't want to risk losing because mining is a risky business. Gold miners can have a lot of problems. As I said, the GDXJ is down 85% over the last 12 years. Now, I don't expect the next 12 years to look anything like that, but I could be wrong. And so don't invest in these stocks unless you're willing to take a chance that I might be. But if I'm right about what's gonna happen to these stocks, I think the upside is 10, 20X, maybe more. So it's a kind of gamble that I wanna take. In fact, I don't really look at it as a gamble because I look at a gamble just like rolling dice, which is just random probabilities. I think there's a lot more intelligence that goes into this. So it's not really a gamble. It is a speculation. It is a calculated speculation where I can offset the downside risk with the upside potential and decide if this speculation is worth making. And it also involves a lot of fundamental analysis. When you roll the dice, it's pure random chance. But looking at this industry, looking at the macroeconomic fundamentals, I'm not guessing. I am figuring stuff out and making a calculated determination based on my knowledge, experience, and judgment about this asset class and how inexpensive I think it is. And again, my advice is not to try to pick the gold stocks yourself, especially when you're looking at the the smallest companies. Sure, you could just buy the major indexes like I'm talking about, but I think that Adrian Day, who works for my asset management company and manages our gold funds and our separately managed accounts, I think he's a lot smarter than a static index. He knows this industry better than anybody. He's a great stock picker. He's a great money manager. So I would rather hire him than just mindlessly buy everything. And so if you're interested, again, all of my gold funds are available, no load at all the discount brokerage firms. You could talk to the brokers at Euro Pacific Capital. They'll help you select the funds that are right for you. Not just my gold fund, but I have all sorts of other funds that I think are incredible investment values, given the strength of the dollar and the sell-off we're seeing right now around the world in stock prices. U.S. market going down more than foreign markets, but when you factor in the currency, everything is going down. So very good investment opportunities in the value-oriented dividend-paying stocks that we buy. So talk to the representatives at Europe Pacific about buy funds. And also, we could set up Individually, separately managed accounts at Euro Pacific Asset Management. If you'd like to have a custom gold portfolio managed by Adrian Day, then contact us at Europacific Asset Management. That's epacfunds.com or europacfunds.com and talk to a representative about these strategies. Again, there's risk, but there's a lot of reward. So you've got to be willing to take the risk in order to have the potential of tremendous reward. Now, getting back though to gold itself, gold was only down 1.8% on the week. And pretty much all of that happened on Friday. Gold was down 1.7% on Friday. Silver was off 3.5% on the week. But all those losses happened on Friday because silver was down 4% on Friday, which means as of Thursday, it was actually still up a half a percent. And the main reason for the Fall in gold and silver was the rise in the US dollar. In fact, if you look at the dollar index, it was up 3% on the week. I can't even remember a week where I saw the dollar rise by 3%. The US dollar index closed just above 113. It closed the prior week at 109.78. And there was weakness across the board the euro, the Japanese yen, the British pound, even the Swiss franc. Was weak on the week. And so, even though the price of gold went down by 1.7% on the week in dollars, it went up in terms of every other currency. Oh, and by the way, gold is now officially in a bear market too in dollars because gold is now 21% below its record high. But if you want to look at gold priced in other currencies, which, of course, a lot of people in the world do, they look at prices in terms of their own currency, not in terms of our currency. But in euros, gold is only 12% off its record high, approximately. In terms of yen, gold is only 6% below its record high. And in terms of British pounds, gold is only 4% below its all-time record high. So not even in correction territory in terms of yen and British pounds. And of course, there are a lot of other currencies, smaller currencies, that are down more than the British pound. So there are other currencies in which gold is making all-time record highs. So for a lot of people, gold is acting as a very good store of value, even though temporarily it hasn't been a very good store of value for Americans. They would have been better off just in a money market but there you're just playing with dynamite. It's a ticking time bomb, because at some point it's gonna blow up and then you're gonna get flobbered in cash and you're gonna miss a huge rally in gold. So over the long run, I'm confident that gold is gonna be the winner when it comes to a store of value. But even in the short run, gold is still proving to be an excellent store of value. It just depends on which currency acts as your reference point. I want to take a look at some of the individual currencies, though, that really got beat up on Friday. First of all, the euro was down 1.5%. It closed below $0.97 to the U.S. dollar. It went out at 0.9687. That's the lowest the euro has traded in 20 years against the dollar. And that was despite being helped on Thursday as the Swiss franc had its biggest fall against the euro since 2015 following the Swiss National Bank's decision to raise interest rates by 75 basis points. Now, maybe some people were expecting 100 basis points out of the Swiss National Bank, but I have a feeling that they didn't want to out the Fed. And so since the Fed did 75 basis points, so did the Swiss National Bank. The big difference, though, is that the Swiss raised interest rates from negative to positive making Switzerland the last country in Europe to finally exit the policy of negative nominal interest rates. prior to thursday's 75 basis point rate hike which raised the official rate in switzerland to one half of one percent rates were still negative 25 basis points and the hike before that where switzerland went from negative 75 to negative 25 which was a 50 basis point hike that was the first rate hike in switzerland in 15 years but more importantly The last seven years of those 15 years, interest rates were negative. Now think about all the malinvestments and misallocations that helped to create. But this 75 basis point rate hike won't be the last hike in Switzerland either. Rates are going up, but not nearly as high as they're going up in many other parts of the world because Switzerland, despite all of this money creation and negative interest rates, their year over year inflation rate is just 3.5%. Now, had it not been for all this inflation, Switzerland would have experienced the joys of falling prices. But because of all the inflation created by the Swiss National Bank, instead of enjoying the benefits of lower prices, the Swiss were forced to pay higher prices, although the price increases were not nearly as bad as what people in other countries were experiencing. But it's important to point out, that because inflation in Switzerland is just 3.5%, which, by the way, is the highest inflation Switzerland has experienced in 30 years, real interest rates in Switzerland, despite nominal rates being just a half, are actually higher than they are in the United States. Because if you have 3.5% inflation and a half a percent interest rate, you have a negative real yield of 3%. Whereas in the United States, we have inflation of eight a quarter and interest rates of three and a quarter, we have negative real yields at 5%. So on a yield basis, adjusted for inflation, it still makes more sense to be in the Swiss franc than the U.S. dollar. Now, while Switzerland is the last country in Europe to correct the mistake of having negative nominal interest rates, there's still one more holdout in the world, and that is Japan. Japan is the lone nation that still has negative interest rates at negative 1%. And they also have a massive QE program going on as the Bank of Japan is pegging the yield on a 10-year JGB at just 25 basis points. That's one quarter of 1%. Of course, doing that requires a lot of yen printing, which is why the Japanese yen fell to a 24-year low against the U.S. dollar this week. And it would have gone a lot lower but for massive intervention on Thursday night by the Bank of Japan. And that followed the Bank of Japan's decision not to raise interest rates, but to leave them at negative 0.1. And if it wasn't for that massive unilateral currency intervention, the yen would be a lot lower. Of course, if the Bank of Japan really wanted to defend the yen, it would have raised interest rates, but it can't raise interest rates because of all the debt that is owed by the Japanese government. Well, the United States Federal Reserve is actually going to be in the same predicament because the Fed is going to have to stop raising interest rates because the U.S. government is actually more broke than the Japanese government because the Japanese government has a much wealthier population to tax that is flush with savings. Americans are broke. The U.S. government has no hope of raising tax revenue to cover its debt. So eventually the Federal Reserve is gonna have to do what the Bank of Japan is doing now, and that's to stop hiking rates and to resume a new quantitative easing program. And because the Bank of Japan didn't hike rates, it just artificially tried to manipulate the currency higher with intervention. A lot of the gains from Thursday were reversed on Friday. In fact, the same thing happened with the Swiss franc against the euro. The Swiss franc recovered about two thirds of its Thursday losses against the euro on Friday. And in fact, the Swiss franc was only down about 2% against the U.S. dollar as other currencies were getting slaughtered, in particular the British pound, which fell 3.5% on Friday alone. The British pound closed the week at $1.085 against the U.S. dollar. That is a 37-year low for the British pound. That low was reached back in 1985, just before the plaza accord finally weakened the U.S. dollar, not just against the pound, but against all currencies of the world. The lowest the pound traded that year was $1.05.2. It was February 26, 1985. So if the British pound falls below that price, it'll be an all-time record low For the British pound. and In fact, it's even possible that the British pound could hit parity with the U.S. dollar or even breach parity where one British pound is worth less than one U.S. dollar. That would be a huge embarrassment for the United Kingdom. Remember, at one point, the British pound was the world's reserve currency. It was a more important currency in world trade than is the U.S. dollar. But it just goes to show you, just because you're the world's reserve currency at one moment in time does it mean you're the world's reserve currency for the remainder of time because the dollar's days are numbered. It's obviously just a bigger number than I thought. It's hats off to Brent Johnson with his dollar milkshake theory. No, I did not expect the U.S. dollar to rise quite this much, but it has. And it's because I did not expect the Federal Reserve to be able to keep up the pretense of an inflation fight in the face of such horrible economic and market data. And if he did try to pull that pretense off, I expected that by now the markets would have seen through the charade and figured it out. So Powell is surprising me with this game of chicken. I expected him to blink sooner, and he hasn't. And so I think that is the reason that the dollar is rising more than I thought. But this rally is unsustainable because so too is the U.S. economy, and so too is Powell's ability. To continue to pretend that he can raise interest rates to fight inflation without collapsing that economy. He claims he's willing to accept a little pain and some below trend growth and a small increase from a very low unemployment rate. But I think his personal political pain tolerance is actually very low. And I think that tolerance is going to be tested soon. Now, there was also some fundamental news that caused that oversized sell off in the British pound on Friday. And that is that the newly elected British Prime Minister, Liz Truss, who is a Tory, the Conservative Party, has decided to try to fight inflation by stimulating supply with tax cuts. And so the government has announced tax cuts in the face of already record high budget deficits in the UK that will, of course, go even higher as a result of a reduction in revenue. And this is supposedly going to increase supply. And therefore, help fight inflation. It is actually going to do the opposite. It is going to stoke the inflation fire that is already burning hot in the UK because there are no government spending cuts. So, if you cut taxes and you don't cut spending, you don't really cut taxes because government spending equals taxation. Every dollar that a government spends must be paid for one way or another. So what have the British decided to do? They have traded the income tax for the inflation tax because the money that the British are no longer collecting in taxes is gonna have to be printed by their central bank. A central bank that is supposed to be fighting inflation will be forced to create even more inflation in order to fund these tax cuts that are supposedly gonna fight inflation. They won't, they'll make it worse. Now, let's say this British central bank refuses to monetize the larger deficits that will result from the tax cuts, where will the British get the extra money to spend? They'll have to borrow it from the private sector. The same private sector that's getting a tax cut is going to have to loan that tax cut right back to the British government. How are the tax cuts going to create more supply if there's no actual additional capital investment to fund that increase? Now, it may not necessarily be the same people who get the tax cuts as who buy the government debt. But whatever money the British government puts into the private sector because of the tax cuts, it has to take out of the private sector to finance the bigger deficits. So there's no way that this could work. The net effect is going to be even higher inflation. And for the average Brit who gets a tax cut, the extra inflation that will result from the deficits that are created to fund these tax cuts will push consumer prices up by a higher amount than the total value of the tax cuts. So in other words, the British people will be worse off as a result of these tax cuts. Yes, they'll have more after-tax income, but prices will go up by a greater degree, so they'll have even less purchasing power despite having more British pounds in their paychecks after tax. What the conservative British government should be doing for fiscal policy to fight inflation is cut government spending. No governments are cutting spending. Every government claims they want to deal with inflation, but no government wants to actually cut spending, which is the only way to deal with it, including here in the United States. The U.S. government continues to pass spending increases while claiming that it's committed to fighting inflation. And all you have is the Federal Reserve that is raising interest rates. It cannot win this battle by itself unless it is willing To allow the US economy to endure the consequences. And I don't see that it's going to happen. They've never done that before. And I don't believe they're going to do that now. Another currency that got pounded on Friday was the Australian dollar, down over one and three quarters percent. It settled at just above 65 cents at 0.6528 against the US dollar. Probably weakness in commodities weighing heavily on that currency and fears of a global economic recession. Oil prices were down almost $5 a gallon Friday, down $4.80. Oil finished at $78.25. In fact, the price of oil is now lower than it was when Putin invaded the Ukraine. So neither Biden nor the Fed could get away with blaming the inflation on Putin's price hikes because prices are lower now than when Putin invaded the Ukraine. In fact, as oil tanked, oil stocks came under some intense selling pressure. Some oil stocks actually made new 52-week lows on Friday. I want to finish up the podcast, though, by turning my attention directly to the carnage in the bond market, which is really what's driving everything in the stock market, the foreign exchange markets, the precious metals markets. Yields continue to move up, and the yield curve continues to steepen its inversion. The yield on a six-month treasury is now at 386 A one-year is 4.065. The two-year yield, again, high point of the curve, is now at 4.2%. Now, the yield is downward sloping from there. The five-year yield is 3.98%. The 10-year yield is 3.68%. And the 30-year yield is 3.61%. This inverted yield curve not only shows the markets anticipating a recession, but the markets also anticipating the end of inflation. The markets still believe that Powell will succeed in returning inflation to 2%. The markets are completely clueless to the reality that not only won't the Fed succeed, it will fail abysmally. And therefore, yields on the longer term bonds are going to soar. But in the meantime, rising bond yields continue to push up mortgage rates. The yield on the 30 year fixed rate is now at 6%. Point seven percent Look at how rapidly they're going up. Because the podcast I did a few days ago, it was 6.4. And the podcast I did a few days before that, it was 6.1. That is a 10% increase in mortgage rates in one week. Remember, when the year started, 2022, the 30-year fixed rate was 3.3. And the lowest it got early in the COVID crisis was 3.1. In fact, I'm going to do this calculation again. I did it on another podcast, but since the beginning of the COVID crisis, median home prices are up 46%. Now, when I did my other podcast, I talked about a 30% increase over two years, but if you go back to the beginning of COVID, it's a 46% increase, which is a little bit more than two years. Meantime, you've got mortgage rates up from 3.1 to 6.7, And so that means on a mortgage, if somebody puts 5% down and they bought a $300,000 home back at the beginning of COVID versus buying the same home now at $438,000, which represents a 46% increase, your monthly mortgage payments have gone up from $1,480 a month to $3,039 a month. That's a 105% increase in the monthly mortgage payments. Now, that doesn't count maintenance that has gone up, utilities that have gone up, insurance that have gone up. This is an unprecedented increase in the cost of shelter if you're buying a home. Now, compare that to the CPI, which claims that the cost of shelter is only up about 10% during that identical time period, maybe a little bit more, maybe 12, but basically you're talking about the actual cost to buy a home up 10 times more than what the government claims the increase in shelter is during the same time period. And remember, shelter is a full third of the CPI. So how much has an individual's cost of living got up who is buying a home versus the same individual buying that exact same home two and a half years ago? But another factor that is driving mortgage rates higher is that the spread between mortgage rates and treasuries continues to widen. If you go back to the beginning of COVID, 30-year mortgage rates were about 200 basis points above the yield on a 30-year treasury. So you got an extra 2% loaning money on a mortgage than you got loaning money to the U.S. government when you bought a treasury. Well, now that spread is 300 basis points. It's increased by 50%. Why has that happened? Well, what reason is a quantitative tightening, because the Fed used to be a buyer of mortgage-backed securities, and now it's a seller. And so that's putting downward pressure on the price of mortgage-backed securities, which is putting upward pressure on the yield, but also risk is rising. To the extent that the mortgage is not insured by the government, there is now a greater risk of defaults, and so that has to be priced into mortgages. I believe that that spread is going to widen considerably as interest rates rise. And I think when the yield on a 30-year treasury hits 5%, which I'm confident it will do by next year, regardless of what the Fed does. If the Fed keeps hiking, then rates are going to go up. But if it stops hiking, then inflation is going to go way up. And the only reason that the yield on a 30-year treasury is still as low as 3.61% is because everybody believes the Fed will win the inflation fight. When it surrenders the inflation fight, to fight something else, a more menacing evil, depression and financial crisis, then instead of bonds going up and yields going down, I think bonds are gonna get killed and yields are gonna go up. But just moving the 30-year yield to 5%, which it should be higher than that by now, if the two-year is 4.2%, you should get more yield for taking 28 years of additional inflation risk. But I think when a 30-year treasury yield hits 5%, I think the yield on a 30-year fixed mortgage will be 9%. So in other words, the spread will increase another 100 basis points from 300 to 400. Imagine the cost of a home when the mortgage is 9%. Housing prices are already unsustainable with mortgages at 6.7%. Even Jerome Powell admitted that housing prices have to go down. But housing prices can't go down without defaults going way up. And when defaults go way up, that means somebody has lost money because when somebody stops paying their mortgage, somebody else loses that revenue stream. One person's liability is somebody else's asset. And so when you default on that liability, then somebody else sees a default on their asset that results in write downs and then bankruptcies and then more dominoes start to fall. And next thing you know, it's a full blown financial crisis. The only way that the Fed can avoid this or at least postpone it is by pivoting. And that's exactly what I expect the Fed to do. Again, the only question is, how much longer are we going to wait? And how much more pain may investors have to endure who are betting on the Fed doing the wrong thing instead of for the first time since Paul Volcker doing the right thing? My money is on the Fed doing the wrong thing. I don't want to fight the Fed. There's an old expression, don't fight the Fed. Well, the Fed has a long history of doing the wrong thing. And my bet is that history repeats.